Welcome to the third season of In Search Of, the podcast where we go in search of things we are highly unlikely to find. I'm your host, Amy Frickholm, and this season, we're in search of the forgotten worlds of lost Christian women. Women in the Christian tradition whose stories have been distorted, lost, or discarded. And we're starting with a very familiar woman, Mary Magdalene. She's one of the most central women in the Christian tradition, and yet we're gradually discovering that we may have never known her at all. Last season on In Search Of, I interviewed biblical scholar Elizabeth Schrader-Polzer about her groundbreaking work on Mary Magdalene's role in early Christianity. You can find that episode in the show notes to this episode. But today, for the first episode of this season, I'm bringing Dr. Polzer back, along with Dr. Diana Butler-Bass, to talk about the implications of Polzer's research on the Christian tradition and on our own moment in Christianity. Elizabeth Schrader-Polzer is an assistant professor at Villanova University, and her textual critical work on Mary Magdalene is transforming the field. Diana Butler-Bass is an author, historian, and public theologian whose many books include her recent Freeing Jesus and one that has had a strong influence on me, Christianity After Religion. It's Diana's sermon at the Wild Goose Festival, which you can also find in the show notes to this episode, that first alerted me to Elizabeth's work. I felt that call, that come and see. So I invited Diana and Elizabeth to join me to discuss Mary Magdalene, who she might have been, and why that matters. I'm really grateful to have you both here. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Amy. It's good to be here. So Elizabeth, after all your work on the texts related to Mary Magdalene, what's your best guess about who she is? Who is Mary Magdalene? Who are we talking about? Something of a tricky question, because as a responsible historian, I have to be very clear that we can't be certain. Um, we do have the Gospels, which are our earliest record of what happened um, with Mary Magdalene and Jesus. And unfortunately, the four Gospels disagree with one another, especially in details around Mary Magdalene. Um, they do all except for Luke, sort of, they do all basically say that she's there at the cross and they do all say that she's at the empty tomb. Um, most of them list her first in lists of women. So that suggests that she's a pretty prominent woman and they call her Mary the Magdalene instead of identifying her by her sons or her father or her brother. So that suggests that she's maybe an independent woman. Um, both Mark and Luke say that she supported Jesus out of her means, so she may have had some money. Uh, but that's, I mean, that's kind of all that we can know. <laughs> um, and what I would say is that people have different theories about Mary Magdalene, and all you can do is argue for them as plausible. So my plausible argument that I am putting forward is that Mary Magdalene was actually from the town of Bethany um, and that the story in John's gospel about this, the raising of Lazarus, that the Mary in that story, by the way, she's never called Mary of Bethany. She's just the sister of Lazarus, whose name is Mary. Um, my argument is that it may have been known in early Christian circles that this Mary was Mary Magdalene. And it might have been said in sort of a cagey way by the evangelist, perhaps because the evangelist wished to share some sensitive information about Mary Magdalene. I think it is possible that she was controversial even in her own lifetime. And that could explain why the Gospels all disagree with one another about her. Um, each evangelist has a different thing to say about her and sometimes it contradicts the others like for instance john says that the risen jesus appeared to her first of everybody and matthew says that the risen jesus appeared to her first along with another woman named mary um mark says that uh the marys went to the tomb and they saw a young man who told them that jesus had risen but then they just run away then <laughs> they're scared they don't get to see Jesus. Um, and then in Luke, the women are unnamed, but then they run to the men. Jesus does not appear to them. 
but they start talking to the men. And once they tell the men that they saw this empty tomb and that some angels appeared to them, then their names are revealed and Mary Magdalene is first in the list. So basically on the Easter morning narrative, each one is different. So the fact that you get so much contradiction around her um, in these early narratives, to me, is a clue that maybe there's something controversial about her from the very, very beginning. And some people, some Christians did think, I'm not just pulling this out of thin air, some early Christians did think that Lazarus's sister Mary was Mary Magdalene. Um, we have a record of this going as far back as the third century church father Hippolytus of Rome. Also, um, the Manichaeans, sort of a heretical group in the third century, thought that Mary of Bethany was Mary Magdalene. And St. Ambrose, the uh, mentor of St. Augustine, he thinks that Mary Magdalene was the same person as Mary of Bethany. Um, and that kind of became cemented in the Western tradition, that Mary of Bethany and Mary Magdalene were the same woman. Whereas in the Eastern tradition, I think going back probably to the church father Origen of Alexandria, who wrote in the third century, he did not think that Mary of Bethany was Mary Magdalene. And that sort of started the trajectory in the Greek speaking Eastern tradition that Mary of Bethany and Mary Magdalene were not the same woman. So um, I'm kind of saying it is possible that Mary of Bethany and Mary Magdalene are the same woman, but we can't know for sure. So that's kind of frustrating. Um, and some people today would swear by this idea that Mary Magdalene came from a town called Magdala. And um, I co-wrote an article with Joan Taylor saying it's possible that the name Magdalene means tower S because that's basically what it means. Tower, Mag Magdala meant tower in Aramaic. So maybe Mary of Bethany got the title, Mary the Tower. Um, so the, the things are, you just can't be certain. I think what you can be certain of is that she was a prominent follower of Jesus. She was there at the cross. Maybe she got a, a vision of the risen Jesus and she was probably controversial. That's great. I mean, I, I was reading another piece of yours this morning and I was thinking about how hard it is to work in an environment where you can't really say anything for sure. <laughs> I mean, I, welcome to biblical studies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like in literature, it's my background. I feel pretty comfortable not knowing anything, but but then I sort of assume that other people know stuff, and um, and so it's interesting that you are working in this area of uncertainty. I'd love to hear both of you kind of address this because it will come up a lot in this season of In Search Of because we're talking about a lot of times we're talking about historical records where we can't really know things. You know, it's it's really interesting to me every time I am with Libby and we're talking about this because our professional expertise and our historical training is on the exact opposite ends of the historical spectrum in the history of Christianity. She's early and my PhD is in American religious history. And I remember this joke that people used to tell at Duke when I was a student there, many years before Libby was a student there. And that was the early church historians used to refer to people who did my field as journalists. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, because we had so much evidence and basically everything we were studying, you know, happened within the last 200 years. And so... Um, in American religious history, the question isn't too little evidence. The question is too much evidence and figuring out how to sort through the mountains of uh, details that we do have. And so I was listening to Libby talk about Mary Magdalene and what we don't know. And, and what's fascinating is 2000 years later, we actually do know a whole bunch of stuff. We know how the tradition has handled Mary Magdalene through the last 2000 years. And I think one of the most interesting changes in the last 50 years is Mary Magdalene becoming a, a really a hero in feminist and women, womanist theologies and also in people who are scouring the history of women in the history in Christianity. And so what we have is we have now just incredible amounts of material written by some of the best, mostly women scholars in Christianity over the whole of the tradition, reconceptualizing, reimagining, trying to figure out this legacy that Libby is talking about, and then working that um, legacy toward the church 
and how does how does this matter towards the church? What does it mean about liturgy? What does it mean about biblical interpretation? What does it mean about the call of women to ministry? So um, it's it's fascinating to me that we do have those two different ends. And so um, people like myself, when I I've taught the whole you know, 2000 years of church history when I was doing undergrad. Everybody does that as an undergraduate professor. You teach beginning to end, if you're especially if you're a small liberal arts college. So I would depend on people, you know, like Libby in uh, early church and medieval church and just have to follow my historical instincts and my training to try to figure out, you know, who's offering me the best story. You know, what story seems to fit with the data we know, the data that's being recovered, and the latest methods of historiography. And, and that's actually one of the things that got me most interested in Libby's research, is that I, when I first ran into it through the Duke alumni um, a mag- magazine, I had never seen anyone uh, working with the story of Mary Magdalene with the level of precision, care, um, and what I would call appropriate historical skepticism as what Libby uh, brings to her work, which to me gives it all the more credibility. Thanks, Diana. <laughs> well, talk about that, Libby. Talk about that historical skepticism and kind of how that works for you and then and what it is like to work as a scholar of the unknowns as well as the, the fragments. Well, I think that's just part of what it is to work in antiquity, and it's part of your training. If you're going to do graduate work and certainly PhD level work in antiquity, you have to have skepticism. Um, I think we all kind of start out with a certain certainty, thinking we know what it is. And um, I remember before I began my graduate work, I remember I was sitting down for this coffee with Deirdre Good, and I said something about who knows what I was talking about. I was saying, well, Jesus did this. And she says, ah, Luke's Jesus does this. I'm like, what? You know, what? It's Jesus did that. And I, I took me, you know, I remember in my master's degree, they teach you, well, Luke's Jesus does this. Matthew's Jesus does this. Mark's Jesus does this. And it's, it's, um, it was a real shift, a paradigm shift that we all have to go through when you begin graduate work, because Sometimes the Gospels do contradict one another, no matter what apologists might say, the Gospels do sometimes contradict one another. And so it's easier for um, historians and scholars and sometimes theologians to just make a really clear distinction between each of the Gospels' viewpoints. Where I'm interested is where even the manuscripts of the Gospels disagree with one another and have different perspectives. And that shows you that to some extent the story was malleable, um, not necessarily just by the evangelists who are inheriting their traditions and tweaking them for their audiences, but even for those later people who were copying the text. Um, that's really where my interest lies. I'm interested in this sort of multiplicity that took place in antiquity when it came to sacred stories. Um, and maybe it was a little bit different for them. They didn't see history exactly the same way that we would today. And once you really dig deep into these texts and these sources and you look at them, you realize that there is there are these unknowns. There are certain things that you cannot know because sometimes the oldest sources contradict one another or have slight variations on one another. And so you have to be skeptical, not as a matter of not just even as a matter of responsibility, but as a matter of it's so obvious, it's so evident, like we don't actually know, we can't actually know. And so then you just have to say, okay, well, there's multiplicity here. And hopefully one of these is the right one. And you can build an argument for why you think that one of these is the right one. And in the end, it's just an argument. And if you persuade your colleagues, then you've done a good job, um, but it'll probably never be a consensus. She's persuaded me, obviously, in two, <laughs> two ways. One is I'm persuaded by the the level of research and exact and and the story she tells around that research, how she's reconstructed that past out of these original texts. I th- I think that's very convincing, and like I said, that's not my area of expertise, but knowing what I do know and how I work as a historian, that is convincing. And the other thing she's convinced me of 
is that maybe the story of malleability around Mary Magdalene is the story. I think you're so right, Diana. There, that there's something, there's something about Mary. There's something about Mary Magdalene that really causes this, um, these changes. Like, for instance, a thousand years ago in the Western tradition, it was a fact that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. Right now, today, hopefully, everybody listening to this podcast knows that that is false. There is nothing in the Bible that said that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. That is a sixth century innovation by Pope Gregory the Great, who was a very influential guy. So, but that fact, and now I would say even 20 years ago, um, some very erudite scholars would say it is a fact that Mary Magdalene came from a town called Magdala. <laughs> and um, I think Joan Taylor and I have done a pretty good job of debunking that and saying, maybe not. Maybe she is from Bethany and Magdalene. Uh, Tower S basically is her title, not that she comes from a town called Tower, but that she herself is the Tower. And the way that these things go, maybe someday that will be seen as a fact that Mary Magdalene came from Bethany and that she's called Tower and that and that maybe Jesus gave her that title. And I think that there is something, uh, I think it was somebody, I think it was Robin Griffith Jones who wrote a book about Mary Magdalene and he said, Mary Magdalene is a mirror. There's something very special about this character that whatever we project onto her is a mirror of ourselves. And that doesn't mean that there wasn't a historical person, Mary Magdalene, who was a very important follower of Jesus. But I think that there's something sort of scintillating about her. There's something, there's some sort of um, aspect of her that reflects the human condition or perhaps even our perception of ourselves. And so the, the aspect of her that gets magnified and highlighted is a reflection of the people who are talking about her. Actually, you know, I am writing a handbook article about patristic interpretation of Mary Magdalene. And if you look at John 20, verse 17, the one where Jesus says to Mary, do not touch me. Um, and everybody's like, what does he mean by that? Um, but go to my brothers, right? So what's really interesting is that people can say that this is a rebuke. People can say that she was touching him and she was very close to him. People can say, oh, this is the end of patriarchy. Don't cling to patriarchy anymore. Go off and do your own thing. And the thing that's going on here is that the interpreter's take on John 20, 17 always tells you more about the interpreter than it does about Mary. So there's something about her that is like a reflection of the interpreters who are talking about her. In that way, it seems like Mary Magdalene is a lot like Jesus. Mm. <laughs> because as a as a person who, you know, has studied a history, a theological history, history of Christianity, one thing that we do know is you can write about Jesus and you write about him and the the diversities of Jesus, say in the four gospels. That's one way to approach the diversity and the multiplicity of Jesus. But the other way is to write a historical theology of Jesus. And what you get is all these different Jesuses who show up in different cultural settings, in different time periods, in different kinds of ecclesiastical settings. Um, and Mary Magdalene is exactly like that as well, yeah. which which really elevates her. Not every character in the Bible mm -hmm. is is like that. But something about Mary Magdalene that invites us to constantly be engaging um, this woman in all of these different variety of contexts and needing to either deny her existence or um, undermine her or lift her up. Um, and so she becomes incredibly volatile as well as being malleable. So I wanted to drill down a little bit about in that something, in that category of there's something about Mary. Um, and I wonder if... I guess I wonder if we could get even more specific about what that something is that allows this kind of volatility and malleability that we've been talking about. Well, I think that it's it's impossible to know for certain, of course. Um, but if you're looking at the earliest sources that talk about her outside of the New Testament, there does seem to be a certain kind of controversy around her in specifically the second, third, fourth centuries. Um, before anybody ever called her a prostitute, the problem seemed to have been that Mary Magdalene was one of um, the most prominent disciples of Jesus. 
that seems to be the problem. And Jesus seems to have had some sort of, um, maybe people seem to have thought of her as maybe one of his closest disciples in certain texts. So for instance, the Gospel of Mary, which is a second century text, portrays Mary as sort of standing up when Jesus leaves and comforting the disciples. Some people have said it's almost like she's taking on a paraclete role in the Gospel of Mary. She's comforting and encouraging the other disciples. And then she shares this vision that she had of Jesus, where he gives her some sort of instruction that causes her to have this sort of ascent of the soul. And it's a, it's, it's like a sort of an esoteric mystical vision that she shares. And at the end of it, she sort of rests in silence. And it causes the other disciples, particularly Andrew and Peter, who are thought to have been some sort of representation of the 12 or of early orthodoxy. They say, I don't believe that the Savior said these things. And then Peter said, did he really turn around and talk to a woman? You know, did he prefer her to us? So there seems to be like a sort of jealousy on Peter's part reflected in the Gospel of Mary. And you get something similar in the Gospel of Thomas. Um, the final saying of the Gospel of Thomas, Peter says, let Mary leave us for women are not worthy of life. <laughs> and Jesus says that um, he will lead Mary. And it's kind of a strange thing he says. He says he will lead her and make her male. Because uh, I, I'm not saying that the historical Jesus actually said that. But he's basically saying that he's going to give some sort of special type of mm, instruction to Mary to make her, I guess, more aligned with the logos uh, or the national, sorry, the masculine uh, principle of reason so that she can sort of leave her womanly material aspects behind and transcend into sort of a higher um, thought world that Jesus is going to lead her into. So Jesus defends her in the Gospel of Thomas. Um, the Gospel of Philip, the disciples generally say, why does he love her more than us? And Jesus says, why do I not love you more than her? And he basically says um, that they're blind. He basically calls the other disciples <laughs> blind. So, I mean, there's there's this early controversy around her seeming to be maybe with Jesus having a special sort of love for her, which isn't, it isn't said to be sexual. It's just that he, she has some sort of favoritism toward her. And because she seems to have perhaps more insight than the other disciples. That's our best guess is that there might be some sort of jealousy or animosity or something about her being a woman who's more advanced than the men or who it, there, there's something about her femaleness that seems to call her worthiness into question in certain texts. And Jesus always makes her worthy in these texts. And so it's partly to do with her gender and maybe partly something to do with jealousy. From the other end of the spectrum, um, it's a little easier for me to say things just sort of more bluntly in some ways <laughs> than Libby, <laughs> because she's always, she is, she is the careful scholar and she's really trying to adjudicate, you know, her particular field very well. And so I'm looking from the other end, from the other end of feminist theology, from the other end of the history of, of Christianity in America. And, you know, it looks pretty clear to me that it was a purposeful deletion or manipulation of her reputation for whatever reason. And so then what becomes incumbent from my field is, is why? you know, what were, what were the purposes of this? And so Libby's work begins to point to that, the idea of jealousy or the minimization of the feminine. And I actually, the more Libby and I have talked about this, and we, we were together fairly recently, and we sort of had an aha moment when we were talking about Jesus, the logos in uh, John, and then Maybe, you know, we're looking at uh, Mary Magdalene as the Sophia ca category. And so so then you begin to, oh, it, it, there's a beautiful icon painted by the Catholic artist Janet McKenzie that has Jesus and Mary Magdalene sitting side by side, both holding out their hands. And they're completely equal figures in this in this icon. And. And, and you look at it and you go, well, wait a second, shouldn't Jesus like be above Mary Magdalene? You know, what's this all about? But as an artist, she takes the story and, and she puts them really male and female together. Um, and the image of Logos and Sophia 
to me was what came up meditating on this this icon and also knowing a little bit of the the history of interpretation around these two so so there's this worry i think on the part of the church that certainly has become heightened in the 21st century about creating an equivalent salvific kind of figure uh, that would be female um, over along with Jesus. And the other thing that makes me think that the church was worried about this from the very beginning is the fact of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene together uh, and showing up so much in the text. And so I'm thinking to myself, okay, so I'm a you know, a second century Christian, I'm reading these stories, and I hear the story, and this is when the church is wrestling with the Trinity and trying to figure out what's this about the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Well, what would keep me as a second century Christian from thinking, oh, oh, look at that. There's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and there's the mother, the daughter, and the and the Spirit. And so you have God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, and then over here you might have Mary, the mother of Jesus, the mother of God, um, Mary Magdalene, who is this sort of wisdom figure who seems to be kind of salvific in some way, kind of like Jesus is, at least this was what some of the texts suggest. And then you have the Holy Spirit. So is there a female Trinity along with a male Trinity? Well, you could see the freak out that that would cause. Well, I I want to push back a teeny bit here. I mean, Diana is a good friend. I'm not saying you have to say that, but I'm saying that. I think it's It's fun to theologize in that direction. And we also have to be really careful to make sure that we're grounding ourselves on what the texts actually say. I think that the, the closest that you have is found in the Gospel of Philip the one that calls Mary Magdalene the companion and basically the twin soul of Christ. The word, um, oftentimes it says companion twice in the Gospel of Philip in translations, but that's wrong because the Coptic clearly makes a distinction between the koinonos, which is the companion, and the hotre, which is sort of like a twin. It's a Coptic word that means sort of twin, maybe consort type figure, but it's not explicitly sexual. So the Gospel of Philip does say something sort of like that, and it also does it's a little bit lacunose. There's some flaking off of the papyrus in this section, but it does basically refer to Mary Magdalene, actually possibly Mary, the mother and Mary Magdalene and Mary, the sister as Sophia. So it, it basically, but it's, it's kind of hard. It could be saying like that the three Marys are wisdom. Sophia is this is the Greek word for wisdom, or it could be saying that, um, the companion of the savior is wisdom and Mary Magdalene, but it's, it's hard to know because the Coptic is um, not, not totally clear there because the text is partly broken off. So that's, that's one perspective. But as you know, I'm a big fan of the gospel of John. And when the risen Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, she calls him Raboni, which means teacher in some translations, but also some of the earliest manuscripts translate the word Raboni as my Lord. And no matter how you want to translate that, um, it is a hierarchical, uh, view and I'm a John person. Right. And, um, and so that's, I, I think that there is a hierarchy going on in that, um, moment between Jesus and Mary Magdalene, no matter how you slice it. And some people, um, really don't like this idea of hierarchy or Lordship attributed to Jesus. And, um, I understand that. And that is sort of contrary to a lot of modern feminist interpretation sometimes curiarchical is the word and at the same time it is what the text says so um i think it would be difficult mm, to argue that in that there was like a general tendency in early christianity to make mary magdalene and jesus equals but i think that you could argue for her as taking on some sort of sophia figure especially in the gospel of Philip. And I also wanted to say that there's this new fragment that might be a piece of the gospel of Mary that the Christian century, I think, is going to talk about because I just submitted an article to them about it. And in this um, section, it does seem like Jesus is giving some sort of special initiation to Mary Magdalene. And if this is part of this missing vision section, there's a few pages missing in the copy we have of the Gospel of Mary, the main Coptic copy, then it means that Mary is getting some sort of wisdom initiation from Jesus. So maybe it's more that 
Jesus is the Logos and the Sophia, and then he passes that wisdom onto her, and it makes her one of these holy souls that receives wisdom, kind of like King Solomon receives wisdom, right? I think that that's a little bit more justifiable um, from the ancient text. But you could see the imaginative tendency on the part of the early church, um, or some people around the early church, you know, just getting fragments and bits and pieces of these stories. And the, and, and so the possibility, I think, was um, just sort of there in sort of a nuance or a sort of a nidus form, you know, a seedbed form um, in early Christianity for having some sort of feminine equivalent to the what was developing along the lines of what will become what we know as orthodoxy. And so if the, if that is the imaginative possibility within Christianity, um, it means that there would be a certain kind of pressure on the, on the church authorities um, to, you know, minimize that, to minimize it. You know, say it's this is we don't want people to go there. This is outside the sort of bounds of what we think the story is telling us. And so how can we sort of soften Mary Magdalene's authority, presence, whatever um, in the scripture, in the text to to remove the temptation uh, from people's uh, thinking about these women and putting them on any kind of equivalent plat platform. And so, you know, this is part of the job of a contemporary historian slash uh, wannabe theologian is we're supposed to raise the questions and say, well, what if, you know, it's kind of an interesting speculation here. I'll just say from my, <laughs> my perspective, that's exactly why I invited you both to have this conversation on this podcast. So, yes, I, I'm all in. Go ahead. I think that, the, that may be, I think that, for, the, for those who maybe encounter the content in the Gospel of Philip, you could maybe say something like that. There's also the lost Gospel of the Hebrews, which we don't have at all. We just have church fathers quoting it. And one of the fragments of the Gospel of the Hebrews refers to the mother of Jesus as the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of the Hebrews. Oh, my. Yeah, but it's totally lost Gospel. We don't. Um, we don't know what else it said, but Jesus refers to his mother as the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of the Hebrews. Um, I'm also really interested in this concept of Mary as sort of a category, um, which includes Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene, and possibly any other Marys who were there at the cross, that there is some sort of... Um, incarnation of a Mary that it appears in multiple women. Um, and so I wouldn't necessarily give um, favor to Mary Magdalene only in that kind of a situation. I would say that especially her Mary and the mother of Jesus. And again, the gospel of Philip does sort of hint at something like that, that there's this category of Mary that is the equivalent of Sophia. And that could be related to what's going on in the gospel of the Hebrews where Jesus refers to his mother as the Holy Spirit. And actually the Gospel of Philip also says that the Holy Spirit is feminine. I could see that there would be some sort of pushback in response to that kind of theology going on in the early church, but whether it's actually the fact is something we can't know because only some <laughs> Christians thought so. The Gospel of the Hebrews and the Gospel of Philip are just two documents. I mean, there's so many other viewpoints going on. Think about what Paul had to say. Think about what... Um, you know, James, the letter of James and the letters of Peter and the pastoral epistles. I mean, everybody had a different opinion at that time. And I want to make sure we're not just choosing our favorite and saying that's the right one. Well, I do think it's interesting in the context of medieval history. Mm -hmm. I mean, that that possibility that I just laid out there, because the it's, it's pretty clear that the church understood that some level of the feminine and the divine had to be available mm -hmm. to Christians. And so what became the orthodox approach was Mary, the mother of Jesus, the Virgin Mary. And um, we have every 
piece of evidence that we could possibly have uh, for the for medieval Christianity to come, you know, just extraordinarily close mm-hmm. to, in effect, making um, Mary the mother of Jesus almost like a fourth character in in the Trinity. And people regularly accuse um, medieval Christianity of that. So that's not a that's not blowing that out mm-hmm. of the water. That's something that was real. And so if somehow there's either this universal Mary sort of spirit or that Mary, Mary Magdalene and the spirit were being put together in kind of a female type Trinity, or if maybe some of the early church had as much of an overactive theological imagination as me. (laughs) That's a likely possibility. Um, It is a likely possibility. Actually, if I think about it, somebody back then probably thought about it too. Um, And so, so the, so the, the solution for that was the elevation of one of those women and the diminishment of another one of those women. And so that functions in a very, I mean, it's speculative, but it's a really interesting um, historical speculation. Not anything I could ever prove because I'm not medieval scholar, but, you know, I think there's kind of enough there that there's some interesting hints for us to think about what would this have been the kind of thing that the church authorities might have sort of pointed in this this pathway in order to stop what they thought was going to be a potential heresy down the road. Um, and so so, the, so that's really all I'm saying here. And I, I but I do think it's intriguing that one of the Marys gets lifted up to point of near divinity while the other Mary gets pushed down, uh, to such a point that she can barely be discussed in in decent company because of her uh, disreputable mental state and her sexual um, history. That is fascinating. That is fascinating that the tradition became very comfortable with a Mary as mother, Mary as mother of God. And, and the tradition became very uncomfortable with Mary as a tower, as a which, you know, to me, I don't know what other interpretations I've got available besides a towering figure, an influential one, a um, a leader in this community with special uh, relationship with the divine. It's, it's just interesting to watch that evolve anyway over several mm-hmm. centuries. And I have to say this, sorry, I keep talking about this extraordinary new fragment, <laughs> This papyrus oxyorhynchus 5577. I know it's such a boring title, but if it is a, a missing piece. No, Libby, the, the real problem is the real problem is saying the word oxyrhynchus. I'd like have to I know, practice that. For like, if they could just name it something else, then I think we could talk I about know. it. Yeah, the oxyrhynchus. Well, this new fragment of papyrus that might be a piece of the Gospel of Mary. I think what's really exciting about that is that there's so much desire to know more about Mary Magdalene and this new piece has appeared and we haven't gotten anything new. I mean, I think um, the last we, the, the gospel of Mary was first found in the 1890s and it was published in the 1950s. took a long time to publish that one, but we haven't gotten anything new and there's so much wanting to know more. And I think that this new fragment is really exciting. Even if it isn't a piece of the gospel of Mary, it's this dialogue between Jesus and Mary Magdalene where he tells her how she can become an image of eternal incorruptible light. Whoa. (laughs) And it's an ancient text. And that's, I mean, that tells you that there's something about this figure, Mary, whatever Mary she is, that is really, really powerful in antiquity. And why isn't, you know, why don't we know more about that? I think actually that is one of the best cases for the suppression theory that um, we have. Certainly we know that there was at least we have at least three surviving copies of the Gospel of Mary. One is a Coptic fragment, sorry, a Coptic codex that is mostly intact, but with some pages missing. And then we've got two Greek fragments, third century Greek fragments, and they're all in different handwriting copied at different times, which tells us that this was a circulating document, circulating enough to get translated. And now we might have a fourth copy in yet another hand. And we have about the same number of copies of the Gospel of Thomas. Guess what? Church fathers talked all the time about the Gospel of Thomas. Sometimes they quoted it. Sometimes they said, don't read that darn Gospel of Thomas. Or like, we don't like that Gospel of Thomas. They had no problem talking about the Gospel of Thomas. This Gospel of Mary seems to have been circulating just as widely as the Gospel of Thomas was getting translated in just as many copies 
but not a single church father ever mentions the Gospel of Mary. Nobody even knew that it existed until it was published in 1955. It was a shock to scholars of early Christianity because why would a text that's circulating that widely not even be mentioned to be uh, banned on the lists of do not read these books, do not read that Gospel of Thomas, do not read that Gospel of the Hebrews, Nobody even mentions the Gospel of Mary. I think that there was something considered very dangerous about this text. And that um, is, is one of the best pieces of, one of the best arguments that you can make for a suppression theory, specifically on the Gospel of Mary. Diana, what do you see as the value in raising this question and in interrogating this history in the way that we've been, we've been talking about? Uh, the, the, the thing that I that got me into this is that Libby and I did get to be friends through this Duke connection. And um, we met, not only did we meet online, but then we met in person. And when she shared her research with me face to face, um, walking me through all the steps, the historian part of Diana uh, got it, you know, I mean, I was anticipating sort of her next move rhetorically and, and uh, research wise as she was unfolding the story. So I think I was a good listener (laughs) for her. Um, (laughs) <laughs> when she was tell when she was sharing her research, it's like, oh well, well, somebody who does twentieth century history understand this, and um, and I, you know, I mean, I immediately got it uh, on that level. But then, as she got through to sort of the big take home point um, of her research, is that Mary Magdalene is the one who gives the confession, the Christological confession in John. That was the moment when I almost fell through the floor. I had an emotional response to that. Um, I was all teary. I couldn't breathe. I when when Libby and I parted company that day, I drove to my house and I told my husband what I had just heard, and I was like sobbing. And, and I said, "This was a th- thing that I think I have been waiting to hear my entire life." Is that? You know, here we have the synoptics with Peter having the Christological confession in all three of those uh, documents. But then we get to the Gospel of John, a gospel that is canonized. It's in the New Testament. It's an official doctrine um, of the church over time. Nobody, you know, for a long time at least has questioned it being there. And in the heart of it could be this other story, the story of this not just a woman, Martha, who we don't know anything about, who's kind of a minor character, but Mary Magdalene with the confession. And I said, I said to my husband that day, gosh, that just, that changes everything. It changes everything about the gospel of John. It changes everything for women in leadership. It changes everything. So I had that very powerful professional and personal response. And because I had had a powerful response to it, um, I didn't write an article about it. Uh, A while later, I was preaching a sermon um, at the Wild Goose Festival, and um, I was assigned the job of of preaching the closing sermon. And the Wild Goose Festival is an interesting place to preach because about two-thirds of the audience are ex-evangelicals. And then maybe about a third of the audience is um, mostly somewhat disgruntled <laughs> mainliners <laughs> and certainly uh, searching Catholics is what I would call the, the, the other third of the audience. So basically what's happening when you're at Wild Goose Festival is you're standing in front of a thousand or two thousand people and you're preaching a sermon to people who have heard every sermon possible in their lifetimes. These are people who have heard hundreds of sermons and they're a very cynical crowd and they're a crowd that is also asking a lot of questions you know should i stay christian um oh is the bible still worth anything uh what is i i don't really even care anymore why am i even here so so the night before i was supposed to preach i i was still struggling with what sermon to offer them and i I was thinking through the problem and realized what I wanted to do was to give the wild goose audience this, the gift of the Bible back. And 
I thought, you know, how do I do that? How do I communicate to them that the Bible matters and that it's not just a pile of made up fairy stories that they can throw away as they're moving into their post whatever um, spiritual lives. And I remembered, of course, Libby's research. And I thought, oh, oh, if I can somehow show them that they actually don't know everything about the Bible, that the Bible is a living document and that the Bible still has a lot more to teach us. And there are historians and Bible scholars and textual critics who are working really, really, really hard to recover the beauty and truthfulness and the depth and the richness of the Bible itself. I thought maybe that would do. And so I, I think I texted Libby or sent her an email or something. And so I said, can I talk about your research in my sermon? And um, she said, oh, yeah, I'd be thrilled if you would do that. And so I got up the next day and and went to the big tent and uh, preached a... <laughs> You know, remember, this is a sermon for post-evangelicals. So they don't like the Bible very mm-hmm. much, but they still like 45-minute sermons. <laughs> <laughs> so I preached this either 40 to 45-minute sermon um, about this, about Libby's experience, about the research, about the Christological con- um, confession. And um, the theme of Wild Goose that year was Imagine. And so at the very end of the sermon, of course, I said, and can you imagine if we ever lived with in a Christian church that had known this all along? Imagine what the last 2,000 years would be like. And there were people in the tent in the, who were weeping, and all of a sudden people were kind of doing call and response with me from the the audience up to the stage and it it the the whole thing landed with incredible power and it, it just so happened that I had turned my phone on when I started to preach because I wanted to record it mostly to share it with Libby and um we're my husband and I are driving back from Wild Goose and I said well that was amazing and um I said should I send that out to my um, Substack newsletter people. And he said, Oh, yeah, I think they'd really like it. And so we quickly, you know, edited it up. And I wrote a little uh, sort of piece introducing it and uh, sent it out to my Substack newsletter. And, and within hours, we were looking at the the number of people who read it or listened to the downloaded the, the sermon within just like four hours, 10,000 people had downloaded the sermon. And I looked at Richard and he looked at me and he said, oh, he said, something is happening here. And I, I, I think I, within very short period of time, sent a warning to Libby <laughs> <laughs> that it was having a really big impact. And, um, and so I didn't write about it except to transcribe that sermon. And then that got out as an article that Diana Butler Bass wrote. And I've just spent so much time in the last 18 months telling people, no, that's a transcription of a sermon. <laughs> it really highlights the <laughs> relationship between the oral and the written forms, which is yeah. not incidental to the things that we're talking about here. oral forms. Right. She showed me like her notes that she had. It was like two pieces of sort of handwritten like. <laughs> things that I had said at one time there was no like script there was no typed anything she she was preaching from memory that's yeah and people don't know that I do that <laughs> except now I guess they Diana do is a fabulous <laughs> preacher I mean obviously this is not just about my research it's about Diana's ability to bring it out there and I also want to I say this a lot um this is not about like the sole genius hero who saves everything no this is about community and this is about sisterhood. There's certain things that I can do, and there's certain things that Diana can do. There's certain things that Amy can do that she's doing right now, and there's certain things that the listeners right now, not just the sisterhood, brotherhood too, are able to do. And that's the kind of change that I want to see in the world. I don't want to have some other hero here to save us all. I want. I think that that's also a big part of whatever Mary Magdalene is about. It's not just about one person like having all the power. It's about everybody finding their gift and working together in community. I think that that's really important for what we see happening with Mary Magdalene. And um, 
even if her role was changed. So my argument is that Martha, somebody who read Luke's gospel in the second century, editorially added Martha to John's gospel to ensure that Mary, who people thought was Mary Magdalene, would not get that Christological confession. And it's just a theory. We don't have any manuscripts where Martha is totally absent. But one in five of our Greek copies, we've got thousands of Greek copies, one in five of them have a problem around Martha. It's all over the place in the textual transmission. One in three of the old Latin copies has problems around Martha. There's tons of problems around Martha in the Ge'ez, the Ethiopic manuscripts, the Syriac manuscripts, and the Coptic manuscripts. And church fathers say things like Tertullian said that Mary gave the Christological confession. You get funny things going on in church fathers and the ancient artwork. Most of the ancient artwork depicting the Lazarus episode has just one sister. It's Jesus, Lazarus, and one sister. That is the most common iconography of the early Christian artwork. So that's um, that's something that, you know, I can do the research and I can bring it out. But Diana has this gift of preaching. And I know you were going to tell them how many people heard it. So I'm going to let you say that. <laughs> well, this is where the community piece yeah. comes in. Because, you know, I saw 10,000 people or whatever downloaded it within a few hours, within a few more hours, it was way more than that. And as we're recording um, our conversation today, uh, from what I can figure, what I can see that's available to me through statistics about my, my, my newsletter and some other kinds of uh, analytical data, uh, we believe that a just under 1 million people have now listened to that sermon. And so that makes this sermon uh, one of the uh, one of the most listened to sermons um, of the 21st that, century. Uh, <laughs> of the last couple of years, <laughs> yeah, at least. And, and again, on that, again but... I don't. <laughs> and I, I don't actually, you know, attribute that. I mean, I was, I was thinking like Michael Curry's wedding sermon out of the main line might have been heard by probably more people than that. But um, so so what what I attribute that to, and I think that Libby probably, I think, you know, we've talked about this quite a bit, um, is we were we were overwhelmed by the response. And what was so, I think, beautiful is while there were critics and there were people who questioned what we were you know the research and you know kind of cynics and a few meanies in the crowd um the the vast majority of it was people who were sending us thank you notes and people saying that oh my gosh um i've never heard anything like this i i had i, I don't know if i ever told this to libby but a very famous author um, who has left basically left Christianity behind, write me a note and say, um, it was the first sermon that I could listen to in the last five years. Mm. And, um, and, and so that's the kind of thing that we began to hear. And it was like, this was, this was a, not about my sermon. This was about this research. This was about this discovery. This was about the fact that I could put the story together. And then it became about this community of people who just started sharing it uh, like crazy and this beautiful, amazing stuff going viral. And it's just taken on a complete life of Which, its own. Which, I mean... And if it impacted both of us you greatly. You know, from a... The cultural critics point of view what it suggests is that there was something in the culture that was still waiting to understand mm. uh mm -hmm. that had that that you weren't answering a question people had long since forgotten about or didn't care about you weren't suggesting a new interpretation of something that everybody was like eh, i don't care i mean i've had enough I don't need this. Mm -hmm. Instead, there mm -hmm. was a hunger, there was a need, there was a question that was still available in the culture for for this research to meet. And that is astonishing, mm -hmm. really, when you think about it, that people could have that kind of emotional response, that you had that emotional response, that Libby had that emotional response in the midst of the research, suggests something that's very alive to us still about this figure of Mary Magdalene, about the way that she's spoken to us even through an interpretive tradition that has really, you know, tried to diminish her in every possible way. And yet somehow we were still ready to hear this in the 21st century. That's a very strange thing, I think, that, that we're talking about. 
I think there's some other things that are going on that are really strange too, such as the fact that this is a story about death and resurrection. The Lazarus story in John's gospel is about death and resurrection. And what I was saying earlier about community, my theory, I have a few of them obviously, is that the text was changed to sort of suppress Mary Magdalene as not only the first witness of Jesus in John 20, but as the Christological confessor, which would make her a central character in the Gospel of John, not a, not one of several women, but a central character throughout the entire second half of John's Gospel. And the thing that's really interesting to me is, if the text was changed, maybe that's what was necessary for this Gospel to be included in the canon. Because Mary... Magdalene, as we know, was a controversial figure. And if that was just unacceptable, Peter needs to be the Christological confessor because we've got Mary getting the first appearance of the risen Jesus. So she can't have all that. Peter gets the Christological confession in the synoptics and then some rando, <laughs> Martha, gets it in John. That's the only way that we can handle this gospel. If that's the case, then the gospel has laid down its life for us. That is so Johannine. That is so what Jesus is all about. You lay down your own life for the sheep, right? People at that time could not handle, I'm, I, I'm actually, we know they couldn't because the gospel of Mary was 100% suppressed and not even mentioned. They couldn't handle a gospel where a woman had this kind of prominence. So the text sort of lowered itself to meet people where they were at, at that time. And that to me is again, a very community oriented, which is the opposite of ego oriented. Of course, if Mary Magdalene really was supposed to be the Christological confessor in John, that's what the truth is. But if it's not what's right for everybody, then the gospel softens and meets people where they're at. And I think that's one of the main lessons that Mary Magdalene gives us as well. Even if you're right, even if what, even if you have the truth, you soften and do what is best for the common good. Now, I don't mean that in the doormat kind of way that so many feminists and womanists are so tired of, where the person is constantly like serving somebody else's toxic ego. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the person with more power lowering themselves to be of service to the people who have less power. We're talking about what Sarah Coakley calls kenosis, which she, how she interprets the, yes. the tradition of kenosis. Self-emptying. Yeah. Which puts a whole new spin on that Philippians it text, does. really. I'm saying Mary Magdalene participates in kenosis. in kenosis. The Gospel of John participates in kenosis. Thank you for articulating that, Amy. That's perfect. For the, the good of the sheep, <laughs> for the good of the community. And it's participating not as one big hero, but as what is best for the whole. Well, and it, that's, that's, I think, one of the big lessons here. If we have the Gospel of John in, in the context of the Gospel of Mary, I don't know. So the Gospel of John would be earlier, right? Mm -hmm. And the Gospel of Mary later. Yes. But mm -hmm. still the suppression of the Mary, of this Magdalene tradition, if there was a suppression, would have been ongoing, would have already started, would have been. So, so there would have been a sense even of knowing that we were introducing problematic material into the tradition mm -hmm. that was controversial, that mm -hmm. might be competitive with Peter-oriented communities that might be, mm -hmm. and, and that would undermine the immunity of the whole and so on. And, and the, a divided tradition does not necessarily progress as others might hope. I mean, you can see lots of things here to think about mm -hmm. in terms of how these Christian communities were formed, what texts they were formed around, choices that were made and so on. And so that is the amazing thing about this work is it reopens a lot of those questions, I think, for a lot of us who are suddenly curious about things that we weren't curious about before. I love that. Thank you. It's fun. Thank you both so much. This is, I mean, I feel like we just had the beginning of a conversation that is obviously mm -hmm. ongoing. And um, and let's just keep talking. For, for listeners who are frustrated that I didn't um, that we didn't go into detail on Libby's research, please listen to last season's first episode, season two, episode one of In Search Of, where Libby and I talk about kind of the, the textual 
criticism that she has done to talk about the erasure of Mary in John and this business with Martha. So nobody here is anti-Martha, by the way. So just so you know. She's still there in Luke. She's doing her thing in Luke. (laughs) She and Mary. I'm just saying that Mary and Martha in Luke's gospel might be a different family than Lazarus and Mary in John's gospel. Two different families. Exactly. So that was actually one of the things that got shouted to me when I was preaching this sermon. From the back of the of the the, the tent, someone yelled, Don't take away my Martha. <laughs> I love that. Just go to Luke 10. Don't worry. I love it. I love it. Maybe I'll name this episode Don't Take Away My Martha. <laughs> save martha save martha save martha we'll start a whole campaign save martha we'll say to the world elizabeth schrader pulzer wants to take away your martha don't let her no no we still have the same number of women it's still martha and mary and luke and mary magdalene we still have the same three women they're still all there (laughs) all right thank you both so much thank you amy thank you And thank you for joining me for this podcast. You can email me at insearchof at christiancentury.org. Also go to our website, christiancentury.org slash insearchof to sign up for our newsletter and connect with us. Please follow this podcast and rate it on your favorite podcast app. This helps other listeners find this podcast. This has been a production of The Christian Century, a thoughtful, independent, progressive magazine for today.